Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We were offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode of the newer diabetes drugs and patients with NASH. This one's the first. With Stephen Harrison unavailable due to the Texas weather crisis, our good friend Jorn Schottenberg started our session by discussing modes of action and existing clinical data for GLP-1 agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors, while the remaining surfers, Fatty Liver Foundation President Wayne Eskridge, Louise Campbell, and I, asked questions about the data and what it suggests about the role that medicines might play in NASH. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. What do studies today tell us about the potential value of the GLP-1s and separately the SGLT-2s in fatty liver patients with concomitant T2D? And do they tell us enough yet about fatty liver patients without concomitant T2D? Great questions. Let me start out by introducing the uh, two uh, drug classes briefly. Uh, and I want to start out with a GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, which for hepatologists has been become of uh, special interest, albeit not being endocrinologists. So the glucagon-like peptide receptor 1 agonists, GLP-1 agonists, are, have been around for quite some time in the treatment of diabetes. And they act by a prolonged action on that receptor, which pretty much exerts three functions in, in the body. By stimulating that GLP-1 receptor, you get an augmentation of insulin secretion. So more insulin is secreted, leading to better metabolic control. You actually get a suppression of glucagon secretion, which is counterbalancing the insulin effects. And you get a prolonged effect on gastric emptying which means the patient is more, does feel less appetite. So this is the classical decrease in appetite effect we're seeing with that class drug. And interestingly enough, the GLP-1s are not only acting on the intestine or the pancreas, they also seem to have some central nervous effects modulating behavior or satiety. And thus, this comes in very beneficial for the patient. Now, over the last years, the advancement in the development of this class has particularly been in the prolonged effects. So you can reduce the application intervals. And the most recent one we're seeing with the weekly application, for example, the semaglutide, uh, you only have to apply it once a week and get an effect uh, as detailed here on the level of glucose control, a gastric emptying, and weight loss. These drugs have an established effect in the field of the treatment of type 2 diabetes, and they have been approved. Importantly, they have also been shown to uh, decrease cardiovascular outcomes. So there are cardiovascular outcome studies showing a benefit uh, if you add on a GLP-1 versus placebo in these patients. And I think that's very important. Now, we're seeing evidence in the NASH space, and the SEMA study was published in the New England Journal end of last year, and we're, we're seeing some effects here on the liver. But with regards to the uh, liver outcomes, for sure, the data is not as robust yet as we have seen that for the type 2 diabetes field or cardiovascular outcomes. So that study I referred to was a study that was performed in patients with biopsy-proven uh, NASH, actually. So the regulatory endpoint we're exploring for the indication of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis with fibrosis, it enrolled patients with F1, F2, and F3 fibrosis. 
and uh, so pre-cirrhotic NASH in the end. And it showed a superiority for different doses compared to placebo. Actually, it combined three doses of semaglutide versus placebo and showed that resolution of uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis without worsening of fibrosis. So this is one of the surrogate endpoints that has been agreed on for conditional drug approval is significantly higher compared to placebo. Now, the data is intensively discussed because the second endpoint, the improvement of fibrosis part without worsening of resolution of NASH, was not shown to be significantly impacted. In addition, there wasn't a clear dose response of SEMA on the uh, endpoint I detailed first of the resolution of, of NASH. And we just have to understand which patients benefit and why would a drug that is as effective as semaglutide in reducing body weight and improving insulin sensitivity not lead to fibrosis resolution in that time span, which was 72 weeks of trial duration. Hey, Jorn, that's great. So now let's step into the SGLT2s for a minute, and then we'll come back for questions and comments. Sure. So, so the SGLT2s, sodium glucose reuptake inhibitors, are, are uh, somewhat newer. There are a number of receptors in the body, SGLT1 and SGLT2. And but pretty much what they do is they block the absorption of glucose in the kidney. And, and by doing so, you secrete more glucose through your urine, and that lowers postprandial and overall levels of glucose, improving your insulin sensitivity. In addition, by eliminating energy in the end, you remove glucose through the urine, you also have weight loss. Now, the weight loss that are seen with the SGLT2 inhibitors is clearly below what we see with the GLP-1s. It's in the ballpark of two to three kilograms, but uh, the effect on insulin sensitivity are striking. And importantly, also for this type of drug class, an improvement in cardiovascular outcomes has been shown. Now, the cardiovascular outcome here is a little different compared to the GLP-1s, and it refers mainly to heart insufficiency outcomes. But in the end, it, it improved cardiovascular outcomes. And I think that's a very important news for patients with type 2 diabetes and, and NASH. The evidence in the NASH field is clearly not as strong as we've seen it for the GLP-1s. There are some biopsy-controlled studies ongoing, but a lot of studies have only looked at non-invasive markers, liver fat quantification, and some surrogates of fibrosis. And we're seeing good decrease in particular in the liver fat content. So to summarize that, that effect, it's a strongly, it's a strongly metabolic effect, some mild weight loss and the histological outcome studies with regards to liver, the indication of NASH and steatohepatitis with fibrosis are ongoing. Thanks, Jordan. That's great. One of the things I thought I read this morning, but I couldn't find it over the last day only in one place, was that there may be in at least one of the SGLT2 studies, relative uh, liver fat reduction of around 30% or slightly in excess of that on the average, which would be the benchmark number we tend to think of in terms of fibrosis reduction, if I've got that right. Yeah, that is right. And the effect is there based on those non-invasive markers. Still, for me, I, I view them mostly as anti-metabolic drugs at this point or metabolically beneficial drugs with a strong effect on, on outcome, which is important for our patients. And we need to see more data with regards to the liver outcomes. Who else has a question for Jorn? One of the things that we worry about as patients, of course, is the side effects. The GLP-1, for example, has a lot of receptors in many places in the body, I think. Is that 
a particular concern, or is that something we should not be too worried about? The strongest side effect of GLP-1 relates to the effects on the gastric emptying and the nausea, and the, in particular in the early phase of the treatment, which is the reason why you slowly uptitrate that drug class. But that side effect relates to the effect in the end, and I, it, it's leading to the decrease in appetite, and it's leading to the uh, early satiety these patients reports. So while it can be bothersome, it's part of the treatment effect we're seeing here. Now, other side effects you're mentioning, long-term effects, um, safety, pancreatitis risk. There have been in earlier reports some concerns related to thyroid disease, for example. I think it's important that you keep your drug vigilance high and, and monitor that data, but it's not a major concern according to what I see. In particular, the GLP-1 agonists have been around for some time, so there's a good evidence supporting a positive benefit benefit-risk ratio for that drug class? If I was looking from the patient-caring perspective, I think we've got one class of drugs that are injection and one class that are orals. Do you feel that that affects people's uptake in which medication they're particularly prescribed or the choice in the physician? So as a physician, I tend to think that an injectable is acceptable for a patient, even daily injections. That is bothersome. You have to handle the device. You have to think. You have to stab yourself and so on. But my physician's perspective was always, if the benefit is there, the patient is willing to take that. Very interesting for you to give the uh, patient's perspective on that. Of course, it's easier to take a pill. Then we're talking about, do we achieve the same drug exposure? Uh, how about safety? Again, do we see more side effects? Now, for the GLP-1s and the semaglutide, this has actually been approved in the uh, in the US by FDA. There's an oral uh, semaglutide, and this is back to a daily dosing again. Now, this is uh, fairly easy, and I think compared to an injectable, if you have the same effects, you have a clear benefit as a patient. It's just easier in the handling. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Uh, having taught thousands of people to self-inject for interferon, I think it just takes time and the right opportunity for the uh, person delivering their own injection. In the Certainly in the diabetes fields, the opportunity to allow education and upskilling of diabetic nurses to be able to better assess from a liver perspective, maybe the strongest link that we've got an opportunity for, because a lot of this is now delivered in the community and primary care setting. So it allows us to be able to upskill knowledge in those locations. And I think those are opportunities that we get. Also, I would like to see a lot more real-world data using non-invasive modalities to see how these are actually benefiting patients, not only for the cardiovascular standpoint and chronic kidney disease, but also are we actually making a significant difference in the real world? But how many patients get assessed for liver disease prior to going on these medications? Most of the trials, when I looked up the trials, excluded liver disease. So it, it's very difficult to assess if they're using biomarkers to look for NASH or NAFLD. We know that a lot of these population don't show. So using more innovative techniques would be nice to be able to see that real world, not only the weight loss and the exercise and everything else we can basically inducing these patients. But I think what we are chasing is you add a drug and then we have to add more drugs for some of the side effects. And I think 
you then get a cornucopia of medications going in to treat the original condition. And that we need to look at. But the FDA were quite clear that they basically washed their hands of anything that was to do with lifestyle or modification to help patients. They were purely only interested in the medication at phase three or F3, F4 level, which these drugs work well in combination. There was a study published this week, I believe, um, the step one study, which was semaglutide in a normal population who are non-diabetic just for weight loss. And I think the results on that are fairly impressive that it, with lifestyle intervention in both groups, it reduced body weight by nearly 15%. But 86% of those who received semaglutide attained at least 5% weight loss, but they weren't assessing any real liver markers in a 68-week study was, for me, a loss of information that we could have got in those patients, but it was very, very encouraging in a lot of the outcome. We can get there, and it's nice to see it done in a group that's not got diabetes, although some of them had pre-diabetes. So I'd like to see more of that data come out as to reversal of those conditions and what was going on. That was really interesting results, and I published that in some of our peer groups. I was surprised that I got several messages from people who had dropped out of that trial as a result of problems with nausea, and they weren't happy <laughs> with the experience. So I'm not sure what other things we might draw from that. It's a sample of just a few. So, But it was, it was interesting that the only comments that I got from people that had been involved had to do with dropping out of having nausea issues. There were more people dropped out of the semaglutide arm, 7% versus 3.1%. The study was over a 1,000 patients and participants, so it was a fairly large sample size. But there were a significant number of similar side effects in both groups, but there were more withdrawals. So it'd be interesting to see where that goes and how we can assess liver function on it. Yeah, it really was disappointing that there wasn't a look at liver function in that because it's such a logical relationship. To follow up on that and extend on it, normally they exclude patients with liver disease in these type of trials. And the ALT level, for example, is cut off at 1.5 upper limit of normal. So anybody with some activity with regards to their uh, transaminases would have been excluded. Now I have to look into that specifically specific trial. I haven't seen those uh, exclusion yet, but that's on a lot of the SGLT2 uh, trials, for example, and the long-term cardiovascular outcome studies. Those patients with relevant liver disease are not allowed to be enrolled. And that's coming back to my earlier comment, why it's so important to have liver studies and actually look at those uh, those patient populations. So, Jorn, my understanding is that the SGLT2s have some agents that are in phase 2b, maybe even early phase 3. We're heading towards phase 3, and obviously semaglutide is being you know, aggressively studied in phase three. We can hope that in a year or two, we'll have much more robust set of answers around around liver patients. I had two thoughts, which is that if we're finding out that agents like uh, FGF21s can get a significant percentage of the population to a 30 or 50% drop in relative liver fat reduction in 12 weeks, I'm wondering whether we feel that SEMA 
as a monotherapy is likely to be as promising as I think people had hoped a couple of years ago. Question that goes along with that, and I'll throw them both out at once, is it also seems to me that if a beta-colic acid were to get approved, that and SEMA casually or programmatically might be an interesting combination. GLP-1s have a good effect on, on lipids, which is an issue for beta-colic acid, and not a good effect on fibrosis, which is the benefit that beta-colic acid brings. So I find myself thinking about SEMA in some ways more as a combination therapy, that being one example. I just wonder how folks feel about that. I can say something quickly and then give it back to the group. Wayne commented on this twice now. Safety is very important and you have to have your patient's satisfaction in the end. You have to, to make an impact for the patient's life and he has to feel better in the end. And uh, while I think it's important or it, it could be one way to add a, a partner to semaglutide based on the data that we've been seeing to address that fibrosis aspect, if you combine two substances, you might produce additional side effects. And I think that's very important uh, in that constellation. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode, and we will release our next full episode on Wednesday, February 25th. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. If you're in the polar vortex zone, stay warm, and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.